Okay. Hi. How you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I discovered you accidentally, I suppose. Um, someone shared a video that you did recently online and I loved it. And so wanted to speak with you more. I don't know very much about you. So I wonder if you might tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. So I am speaking to you from Michigan City, Indiana right now, which is about 45 miles to the east of Chicago and just on the south shores of Lake Michigan. It's, uh, you know, I grew up in this area. My family's all uh, second, third generation Italian immigrants, Croatian immigrants from former Yugoslavia. Everybody came here after World War One, joined the steel mills, or I'm sorry, joined the military, ended up in the steel mills working on the railroads, uh, iron workers, carpenters, pipe fitters, like strong sort of union family. And gosh, what else is there to mention? I Grew up in Rust Belt towns like the south side of Chicago, Chesterton, Indiana, Michigan City, Indiana, uh, places that have been sort of eviscerated by 40 years of really terrible trade policies, uh, automation of jobs, and really the gutting of any kind of social safety net for people. So we're dealing with extreme poverty in our area, uh, drug addiction, um, you know, lack of jobs, lack of housing lack of healthcare. We still have a very industrialized sort of energy infrastructure here. So we have a lot of coal-fired power plants. Uh, still the steel mills that do remain, you know, are sort of polluting the hell out of the local area. So it's kind of a rough background. I mean, I ended up joining the military when I was 18. I uh, joined the United States Marine Corps in 2002. Uh, went to Iraq the first time in 2003 during the initial invasion and then again in 2004, 2005, and around that time, I started to become politicized. You know, I started to read about the war. Why were we in Iraq? What was the history of U.S. foreign policy? Uh, and so I became opposed to the war on sort of ethical, moral, and political grounds, refused a third deployment to Iraq, uh, was discharged from the United States Marine Corps, and joined the anti-war movement, you know, started going to protests and rallies and all the rest. And still strongly believe in those causes and had been involved from that time on. And I'll sort of shut up after this, but, um, you know, since 2006 coming home from the Marine Corps had been involved with virtually every left wing political movement in the country. So, you know, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, uh, environmental protests and actions, uh, union organizing, housing organizing. Uh, it's really what I've devoted my sort of life to over the last uh, 14, 15 years. And over that time have, you know, as my friend Kim would say, remained on the left in spite of the left, uh, not because of it. And so, you know, I've encountered a lot of really goofy shit over that time. I guess this will be the last thing I say, but in 2016, a good friend of mine, Sergio Kochergan and I opened a community center here in Michigan City uh, because we don't have spaces for youth to hang out. Um, we don't have community you know, centers or anything like that. So we'd hold social events and political events and cultural events and all kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, soup kitchens for the homeless, uh, food drives, uh, clothing drives, uh, teaching people how to do, how to use Narcan because we have so many opioid addictions in our area and overdoses. 
um, really sort of nitty gritty community organizing type stuff. And uh, the space was closed due to the pandemic temporarily, of course. Uh, And so Sergio and I decided to start doing a podcast and a YouTube program because we were like, you know, why the hell not? Um, We should try and produce some kind of material for people who supported the space prior to the pandemic. So we figured instead of just asking people for money, let's like produce something, put it out there and see if people will sign up as Patreons to keep the space open until we're able to open again. So that's sort of what we've been into. And a lot of the stuff we'll probably start commenting on on our YouTube channel is like stories and reflections from 15 years of doing this kind of work. And I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people because I don't think there's too many people who get to hear from like poor working class people who are like on the ground doing this kind of work. And yeah, I hope it's beneficial. I hope that's enough, by the way. I'm sorry. I don't I mean to ramble. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, you've you've answered several questions I was going to ask you anyway. So. Okay, right on. <laughs> um, I, so I want to get into like more specifics around the kind of organizing that you've been doing and your commentary around the left and what's going on with the Democrats and so on and so forth. But I did want to just ask you before we get into all that, how um, COVID... Uh, has impacted your community? It's been pretty devastating. I mean, we knew, I think, from the get-go that the economic devastation was going to be severe. And, of course, I think if you're going to ask people to stay at home, uh, then you should sort of pay them to stay at home. You can't tell people to stay at home and not give them the economic, economic means to stay home. It's been frustrating, I think. I've been frustrated with probably everybody, including myself. I mean, I think all of us are just like nine months into this have had enough. Um, The short answer is economically, it's been devastating and we have had a significant rate. I know, I think you're in Canada from what I I understand. So here it has been pretty significant. The death rate has been pretty high and all that kind of stuff. But it's more so like, you know, we're already in an economic an economically devastated area. So, you know, that part of it is probably more severe for people than even the, the health crisis. And for us, as I mentioned, you know, we're used to having four five, six events a week, interacting with hundreds of people a week. And that went from that to nothing for the last nine months. So for, for me, my life has, has been significantly impacted because the community center that we're sitting in now hasn't been open since uh, mid-March. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously, it's had a really devastating impact on the poor and working class. And I think it's even worse in the US, because I think you guys are lacking in social safety nets even more so over there. Um, But, you know, I, I also think that it's had a really negative impact on our ability to organize, you know, I'm also sort of used to doing events and, you know, more in-person kind of activity meetings, events, organizing conversations. And um, as I'm sure you are, you probably are to more of an extent than I am, because I also do a lot of online work. Um, I just, I I notice the the impact a lot and feel really depressed by that particular aspect. I right away was I as soon as I see everything through that scope. So I'm I'm sorry if that comes across. I don't know. Maybe some of your viewers are going to be like, OK, this guy's lost it. But like everything that I view is sort of through the scope of organizing. So when this hit, my immediate thought was, 
you know, we opened the community center because people are spending a significant amount of time alienated, alone, isolated, depressed, disconnected from their neighbors and community. And, you know, now to have to switch to online stuff is just, I mean, we knew right away, we were like, this is going to hinder our organizing efforts more than anything. We have continued with the local organizing body to organize um, tenants at a local housing complex. I'm not going to go into more details because it would be uh, probably not strategic in the in the context of the campaign, but really important campaign at a housing complex where renters have very few protections in a state like Indiana, uh, where we have very regressive laws with regard to landlords vis a vis their tenants. Um, so that I mean we're still organizing. I mean, even in this context, like getting people together in parking lots, having meetings in parks, having meetings in people's backyards, like for us that worked up until the weather dropped you know, because we live in such a ruthless area for the winter. So it's like, it's going to hinder a lot over the next few months, but we've, we've kept at it the best we could. Yeah. Well, good for you. Um, I, I, I was reading a, an interview that you did recently. Well, it was a transcription of an interview that you did recently. And, and, you know, you mentioned that, um, so, I mean, I want to talk about the, like, political history in, in your community a little bit. And you mentioned that in this interview, for the first time in 48 years, a Republican won the mayorship in Michigan City last year. Um, and that the Democrats are continuing to lose seats. I wonder if you can explain why that happened. It's like a microcosm of what's happened in the United States. So. The Democratic Party for a long time uh, was somewhat supportive of unions, particularly through the late post-war period, World War II, sort of the end of 45 till the mid-70s. So there's like a 30-year period there where the Democratic Party is largely seen as like the electoral component to labor organizing in the United States. Um, Starting in the 1970s, you know, you have a series of uh, policies that start to get passed, including... uh, tax cuts for the rich, deregulating of the financial industry, uh, deregulating of all kinds of industries, which allowed, of course, all kinds of corporations to then move their factories from the north first in the United States to then southern states that had less environmental protections, less worker protections. And then, of course, those jobs moved to Mexico. And then they moved from Mexico to the Philippines and to China. So that whole process really gutted Uh, an area like Indiana and where I live in Northwest Indiana, these were cities and towns that were built around industries. So places like Gary, Indiana exist because U.S. Steel uh, decided to open a steel mill there uh, in the early part of the 20th century. It's the same in Michigan City, where at the latter part of the 19th century, the Pullman train factory uh, opened uh, its main operations here in Michigan City, and that provided thousands of jobs for people, good-paying union jobs with benefits. And all of that is gone. So in a place like Indiana, we had the seventh highest union density of any state in the country by the early 1970s. Now we're somewhere ranked 45th or 46th in the country. And through that, I mean, this is both parties and the process cuts both locally at the state level and then nationally. So you have national policies that trickle down. Um, in a bad way, not like in the Reagan uh, sense that these like wealth was going to trickle down. That never happened. Um, so we have terrible national policies that coddle corporations, allow banks and financiers to do whatever they want. 
This, of course, screws workers, jobs sent overseas, unions busted, anti-union legislation for the last 20 or 30 years really destroyed the unions in this area. And also the Democratic Party became more and more out of touch with ordinary people. Uh, And, you know, this, I think, really skyrocketed in the Obama years. Um, But this started with Carter and it goes through uh, the Clinton era, the 1990s, and then right up until Barack Obama's election in 2008. And I mean, the crazy part about this is that in 2008, uh, Indiana went blue for the first time in 44 years. So that was the first time since 1964 when LBJ was elected that Indiana voted for a Democrat and people were excited about Obama. And he proceeded to become or sort of remain, but, you know, a a corporate shill and a neoliberal hack who started all kinds of wars and continued the NSA spying program, went after whistleblowers, on and on and on. And this has destroyed trust and confidence in any kind of politics in the region. So it's not that there's so many more people sort of gravitating toward the Republican Party as much as it is, there's just people who have stopped showing up for the Democrats. So that's why you have, for the first time in 48 years, a Republican mayor in a place like Michigan City. That's why for the first time in uh, 48 years, or for, I'm sorry, for the first time in many, many years, I think almost two decades, our county went red instead of blue. You know, and, and this isn't because droves of people are rushing to the Republican Party. It is because droves of people are running away from the Democratic Party. And it's right. because they've abandoned any kind of principles that... Why in the hell would poor working class people show up, you know? Yeah, right. And I I mean, I think that's been a, a, t- a tough conversation to have. And that's been something that's been difficult to convey to people who hate Trump, who hate the Republican Party. I've always been on the left, you know, in Canada. I've been like a lifelong supporter of the NDP, which is our, you know, labor party, essentially. Mm-hmm. And just in the past you know, a couple of years, I stopped voting for them because I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, Because they were, I felt like they were, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. I felt they were failing women. I felt, you know, they were completely ignoring um, what was going on in real life. They were pandering to ideology, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're sellouts. I think they have no integrity, (laughs) but in any case, I mean, how you really feel. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm really good at saying exactly what I think, unfortunately. So. No, that's great. We need more. <laughs> I mean, it gets me in trouble, but what can you do? Um, yeah, I don't think I don't think getting up. in trouble is such a bad thing, to be honest. No. Um, but so I think I mean, what's happening is that there's this perception. Or, you know, whether or not people genuinely believe this or they just say it, I don't know, that there's there's either you're you're a Trump supporter and you love Trump and you love the Republicans and you think that the right is great or you're one of the good guys and you're progressive. There's like a lack of understanding that a lot of people who are leaving the left, um, you know, who are bailing on the Democrats, who don't want to support, you know, the left in Canada, wherever you are. It's not that it's not necessarily that people are becoming right wing. It's not necessarily that people are in love with Trump. It's not necessarily that people are becoming Republicans. They're just done with the Democrats or they're done with the left. They're done with, you know, progressive politics, as it were. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can probably speak a bit more to that in, in an American context. You know, what's what's happening there and why? 
Look, I mean, I, I actually, for the program, reached out to uh, Brett Weinstein to speak with him. Now, there's a number of, I'm sure there's a number of issues we actually disagree on, which will be even more interesting to talk about because part of what I like about him is like, and what he's trying to cultivate is like this atmosphere, intellectual, social atmosphere, cultural atmosphere, where we should be able to talk with each other, disagree with each other, not burn each other's house down, threaten to shoot each other, show up with guns, threaten to violence on people, deplatform people, ruin people's careers, try and ruin people's lives. I mean, this is the kind of, it takes place in such a small subsection of society that it, it, how do I put this? I, I think, my God, um, it happened to me in 2011, 2012. So here, let me give you an anecdote. This will be a sort of a better way into this. In 2012, I was in an anti-war strategy retreat. Bunch of, you know, and this is for an anti-war veterans organization. So you're dealing with combat veterans who are already traumatized from war. And I don't mean like, you know, I don't want to, like everybody's traumatized. I mean, yeah, like it, a lot of people are. These people and myself probably even more so than most. Um, and coming from poor working class backgrounds, we're going to a strategy retreat in Chicago. Uh, we think we're going there to strategize how to end the wars under Obama. The first hour of the strategy retreat becomes a conversation about pronouns. So here you have a room of anti-war veterans, you know, poor working class guys who are like, look like me, tattooed, whatever, like, you know, probably wearing a T-shirt, smoking cigarettes, whatever they do, just, you know, like working class folks who are getting politicized. And already it's weird because if you're a veteran, there is a sense that when you come back, you should sort of, you know, sort of toe the party line, keep your mouth shut, and that's it. It's very destructive. We could kind of get into that. There's a hyper-masculinity that's very destructive, um, but then also finding some kind of balance because then when I got to the left, I was like, hey, like I was meeting guys who I'm like, I don't think this guy's ever been in a fist fight in his life. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, like this kid thinks he's going to start a fucking revolution and he's never been in a fist fight before. Okay, so that, I mean, I, I joke with my Trump supporting friends because i'm like if you guys are scared of antifa i'm like like please like let me take you to some left-wing meetings and i will get rid of any kind of fear you have that the left poses a danger to you physically in a real yeah. way like it's uh, like oh you're you're gonna fight the nazis is that yeah. right you are <laughs> like, <Yeah>. oh, okay <laughs> it's sure. crazy it's really crazy but those were the kind of experiences that was like and that's why we were going to start that series on the YouTube channel, like why people hate the left. Sergio and I were just going to share like personal stories from the last 15 years of like, here's an interaction I had 10 years ago. Um, and this was a good example of that, where you have a room full of poor working class vets becoming politicized, confused about politics, getting attacked by a lot of people. Why are you traitors? Why are you speaking out about your service? And here's a handful of uh, activists from the Bay Area talking to us, you know, they brought them in from the Bay Area to Chicago, already culturally totally lost in this atmosphere. Then they put them in this room with all these veterans. And then they're telling us, hey, you know, how do you want to be identified? Now, for a lot of us, this was like the first that we're like, what the fuck are they talking about? Like, how do we want to be identified? Like, I didn't even know it was an option. (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know it was an option. I was like, this is for real. Like, Okay, so I could be whatever I want today. I'm like, this is, 
I just, so I walked out. I'm like, a, I'm the type of person that's like, <laughs> if there's something going on, I'm like, go fuck yourself. Like, I ain't going to be a part of this. I went outside, smoked a cigarette. I remember somebody coming out and they were like, do you like, do you have hatred in your heart for, for, <laughs> for queer people? And Are like, you a bigot? Yeah. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. I was like, no. And here I am coming to terms with all kinds of stuff, including in the Marine Corps, there is a real dehumanization of women. There's a real dehumanization of Arab and Muslim people. Now I have a critique of most monotheistic religions and what they do and the sort of impact they've had. But I also have many Muslim friends who are not extremists, who are not violent, et cetera. But you're trained with like a very specific, you know, to to give you another anecdote in the Marine Corps, uh, we'd often have higher ups refer to women Marines as WMs or walking mattresses. So that'll give people an idea of like, what is the internal dangerous culture that's created in these environments where you have almost exclusively men in a really violent hierarchical authoritarian institution? Like here's part of what it produces. Now I also learned and and picked up great traits and values and skills from the military, but it's like, you know, I, I remember when that happened anyway, this was my exit from the anti-war movement. So when that happened at that strategy retreat, I had a falling out. I was sitting on the board of directors of a national anti-war organization at that time. That was sort of step one of leaving. Step two was they had asked us if we could tell them what our sexuality was so they could tell our donors what the sexuality of the people on the board of directors was. Like, right. like we have nine board of like nine people on the board. Four of them are queer. Three of them are bisexual. I was like, this is getting fucking crazy. And that was just like, I kind of, washed my hands with it, walked away. And then many years later saw what happened to Brett Weinstein uh, at Evergreen. And I just thought, holy shit, this happened to us to some degree. Now, not nearly as intense, um, but to the same degree, this happened to us back in, you know, 2011, 2012. And I say us because uh, it was the same case for Sergio. And here's Sergio, another guy at 14 years old, his family leaves Ukraine after the wall collapses ends up in Philadelphia, working class guy getting into all kinds of trouble, ends up in the Marine Corps, ends up a scout sniper, leaves the Marine Corps, speaks out about his service. And he's being run out of the anti-war movement because he doesn't want to talk about pronouns at an anti-war organizing event at a war that's killed 250,000 to 800,000, depending on which estimate or study you look at, devastated the Middle East, devastated, you know, we've spent seven and a half trillion dollars on the war got five, 6,000 of our brothers and sisters who are dead. I mean, these are the kind, like you see those kind of things and you, you interact with those kind of people enough and you go, Hey man, I I see why a lot of people just walk away from left progressive politics and they say, fuck it. Why would I want to, why would I want to spend time around these type of people? Yeah. And it's not only walking away, it's that people are being forced out. You know, I, you know, people are being, pushed out of these movements and it baffles me because I'm like what is it that you're trying to do like are you not wanting people to join you are you not wanting to people to bring to bring people on side are you not wanting to it I feel that they've completely lost sight of what they're trying to do and they're no longer even trying to reach the people that they're claiming to represent that's it's such a good point there's a great book I forgot, I'm going to forget what the name of it is, but it's an old friend. His name's Jonathan Matthew Smucker. People might not agree with the politics or what he's attempting to accomplish, depending on who your who your fans are, who your viewers and listeners are. 
But what I will say is that I believe Jonathan Matthew Smucker nails why the left has lost for the last 40 or 50 years and why it's driven people out. And I think a lot of this uh, comes back to the left creating subcultures. You know, so to your question, what are we trying to do? We are trying to bring people into the political civic process uh, that aren't currently involved. And if we're only interested in talking with people who self-identify with us, we're already talking to a very small subsection of, of the American uh, society and culture and population. And then furthermore, if you start to create language and behaviors and social norms and cultural norms that are so alien from the dominant culture, and I understand the dominant culture is actually very toxic as well. So there's all this nuance where, yes, the dominant culture uh, produces all kinds of weird pathologies, but then the left as a response to that creates a culture that creates all kinds of weird pathologies. And I, you know, I worry that we have too many people who look at this like a scene, you know, like a, you know, like the head scene or like the heavy metal scene or whatever, like you're part of your scene and you got your people and you all talk the same, you look the same, you dress the same. That to me is a big problem with the left today. Like that people see this as some sort of cultural performance where they're just like, I'm going to show people how radical and how right I am. And here, I think the right is dead on. I mean, the virtue signaling, I, I love that term. Like, people virtue signal their radicalism. I mean, and we, you know, for people who are doing work on the ground, we find it quite silly. The problem is, as I'm sure you would agree, and I think this is a point that Brett brings up, and that is, this is now seeped into the dominant culture. So part of this weird sort of left-wing fringe subculture bullshit that existed on college university campuses like Evergreen or in a sort of niche environment like an anti-war strategy session well now they're mainstream and now that they're mainstream uh, a lot of people are looking at those things and saying oh if this is what the left is then why would i what, what is this i don't want to be a part of this you know yeah exactly and i mean as far as i can tell i mean it's interesting because i feel like the left liberals progressives whatever you want to call them um you know they treat the right and the Republicans as those in power. So they still sort of frame what they're doing and what they're responding to as, you know, fighting the fighting the power, fighting the bad guys and sort of fail to see that almost all of mainstream media is on board with their ideology and their kind of jargon and their goals. Um, and, as well as corporations. Like to me, I'm looking at these, these movements and this activism and I'm sort of like, I don't know if I can buy that you're fighting the man when the man has like fully signed on to your message. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like if Nike and like Netflix <laughs> and Amazon and like Twitter, if they're yeah. all promoting your message, is it really challenging? <laughs> yeah, probably not. I mean, probably not. And this is, you know, I saw what this was going to be. How do I say this? Because I'm also, um, you know, in our region, there is, there is a lot of fucked up racism in our region. So I think what you have, like in our region, it's a very segregated area. Like Gary, Indiana is 85% black. It's one of the blackest cities in the United States. 15 miles away from Gary, Indiana is Chesterton, Indiana, where I graduated high school. And that's a 95%, 98% white sort of school. A lot of these communities are segregated. There are, of course, racial issues. Um, 
But it is so much more complex than what people in a movement like Black Lives Matter try to make it that it's hard to get anyone to relate when you have even large segments of, say, the black community in our city. So in Michigan City, where I live, 33% of the city is black. We don't even have a Black Lives Matter chapter here. That's Mm -hmm. both an indictment of Black Lives Matter, but also a reflection on the sort of dim political reality that exists here in Michigan City and places like this, where the black community actually has no political infrastructure. And to the degree that it does, it's largely black churches. Now, there's a lot of people in the black community who don't trust the black churches anymore. And for good reason, a lot of the black pastors and so forth, you know, they're corrupt and they're in bed with the Democratic Party and with a whole class of like elite sort of yuppie upper middle class types uh, from all kinds of communities. So when I'm people from Black Lives Matter come at us and they're like, oh, it's white people or it's this or it's that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like when I when we are organizing black people in our community. They don't bitch about white people right away. Their number one complaint is the black people in their own community who have been selling out people in their community for decades. And then if you talk to black women, their complaint is, is they got a bunch of people uh, in their families, in their households who are beaten up on them. So they got these men in the household who are acting violent in this situation. So it's like layers and layers of complexity and nuance and all of that goes out the window when you start shouting slogans at people and when you're unable to sit down and have a real conversation hey is there like does racism exist i believe it does now what does that mean um in what ways in what context how does it play out how would you go about dealing with an issue like that can you legislate away uh racism can you um You know, I mean, I think this is like more of what I'm interested in in talking about. And in 2014 and 2015, when we were in Ferguson for the uh, after the killing of Mike Brown, I just remember walking around Florescent Avenue uh, where all the action was and kind of looking at what was happening on the ground. And I thought this isn't going to go well. I saw groups of black activists arguing with each other, some who considered themselves black nationalists, some who considered themselves uh, black communists, a new black Panther party, a new, like all of these crazy sort of fringe elements. And I just thought to myself, this, this is blown. Like this opportunity is out the window. And of course it was. And then when it came up again, this time I thought to myself, because if you're on the ground organizing, you realize that there's not an infrastructure So if there's not an infrastructure existing institutions where people are a member of an organization and they're actually accountable to someone else, like you collectively make decisions and you have to like answer to each other. What I see is just a bunch of people out in the streets playing revolution. And the problem with that is that that can become very dangerous. And I think over the context of the last six months, we kind of see a little like little sparks of like what could be. Um, I'm not particularly as afraid or worried, I think, as some of my friends are. But I also, you know, I am concerned that the more people play revolution, uh, the more likely we are to be in a context where people start really shooting each other uh, in a country that has, you know, 350 million weapons. So I don't think it's like something to laugh at or like talk about in this flippant way. It's like, no, I'm pissed at the Proud Boys. I'm pissed at Antifa. I've been pissed at both of those types for years and years because when we've conducted protests and actions, we have these little fucking spoiled white little brats from the universities with their fucking masks on and they're going around smashing up windows and we're like look we've spent months trying to put together this event we're accountable to each other we're working with different organizations and it's just this like hyper selfish 
narcissistic, uh, and and I, I would argue very superficial sort of behavior. And it, it's ruining. It's quite literally ruining prospects for decent politics on the left. In my yeah. Opinion. Yeah, totally. I mean, and so I guess what I wonder is it like it seems to me and you're more engaged than I am on the ground, so you know better than I. But, you know, it seems to me that a lot of activism has become I mean, first of all, it seems like a lot of like activism nowadays is coming out of universities like it's being done by like college students or it's being done online and it's being done essentially it's being done by people who are not working class people who are middle upper class people who don't really understand the issues in like a complex and nuanced way but it does seem like it's often sort of like like this is more about you than it is about accomplishing something worthwhile and I'm trying to figure out where that came from why that happened because I don't I don't think it was always like that on the left I don't think it was necessarily like that like you know in the 70s like I don't think that I think that it it probably started to happen I don't know within maybe the past 10 years or something like that I don't know you know it's interesting there uh I think it was the 13th was the either the day Ella Baker was born or the day Ella Baker passed so I apologize but she had a quote that was like, you never saw me in the newspapers. You never saw me on TV. What I was trying to do was to leave the pieces uh, behind for someone to build organizations and long-lasting movements. I do think it's true that it's more the case today. But I think if you talk to people who are really on the ground in the 60s and 70s, particularly here, I would say women, they would say you did have a problem with these so-called leaders who are in front of the room giving these speeches and people identified, oh, that's Malcolm X. Malcolm X is the black rights movement or the black power movement. Oh, there's Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton is the face of the Black Panther Party. Or there's Martin Luther King. He's the face of civil rights. When in reality, you had thousands and thousands of people on the ground doing this work. Um, does that mean that those people were as maybe narcissistic or selfish as some of the activists and organizers we see today. I don't know because I wasn't there. I do think it's more pronounced today, but I, I also believe that if we add gender to the dynamic of organizing and you speak with uh, people who are left over from that 1960s, 70s generation, they will tell you, I think, and in my, that's what they've said to me in the past, that we had a lot of egotistical men who were in front of the cameras and had a microphone or a bullhorn in the 1960s or 70s, and they were on the front page of Rolling Stone. And in the in the meantime, as is the case with our local organizing efforts, it's mostly women who are getting the work done. And then we have men who want to sit around and talk about philosophy and how they know more than Karl Marx and whatever the fuck else. And at the end of the day, we have mostly women from our organization uh, who are busting their ass, getting the work done, knocking on doors, talking to people, making plans, strategizing, like doing the actual work. And that was also the case in the 60s and 70s. But the only people people remember is Stokely Carmichael, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Fred Hampton, all men. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you add that dynamic, then we have to look at that history a little differently. I do agree with you, though, that it's more pronounced today. And I would argue that uh, that's the case with everything. I think in this neoliberal context, even people who are friends uh, or, or like when I listen to people talk about their friends, I think to myself, my God, that's not friendship. Like that's not the kind of friends um, 
that I think of when I think of friends, like this kind of selfish, self-serving, self-absorbed behavior or the ability to just tell each other you're fucking up. Like if we're friends and you call me up and you're like, Hey Vince, I think you're really fucking up here. Like you've, you need to straighten up. And it's like, instead of being like, Oh my God, like Megan hurt my feelings. And she like, I'm traumatized now. It's like, no, that's actually what a good friend does. Like good friends do pull you in and say, Hey man, or Hey Megan or whoever like, you know, maybe you need to fix this or maybe you're doing something wrong. And like, that's the kind of relationships that I grew up with. That's the kind of relationships I have with my family. So being on the left is like, yeah, it's, it's very foreign to the kind of upbringing that I had. And I, anyway, to just the short answer to your question is that I think if you add gender, we have to re-examine previous movements. And I think right now in the context of neoliberalism, everything seems self-absorbed. I mean, even people, people's like, you know, friend relationships seem that way sometimes. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Like I think that there's this thing, I mean, I know that there's this thing where you, it's acceptable and normalized that if you disagree with somebody politically, or if you have a conflict or somebody says something that you don't like, that you abandon them you ghost on them you call them out you shut them out you ostracize them and you know that it's not not just in an activist or organizing context but like you say in a friendship context like you say something wrong and and your friends like what like you voted for trump like fuck you get out of my life or you know (laughs) what you don't support the goals of the black lives matter movement like you're a racist like i have to i have to cancel you from my life and then of course there's like the larger cancel culture where people you know one wrong move you say the wrong pronoun you have the wrong opinion you stand next to the wrong person then you're ejected from the movement essentially and I don't know. Do you like, do you think that that is sort of a new phenomenon? Unfortunately, I think if you, I don't want to get too in depth with like some inside baseball left-wing bullshit, but like I am very much a student of previous movements. So like I've read about the communist party, the internationals, the workers movements in Italy and France and great Britain through the 1880s, 1930s. There is a tendency on the left. Now I think it's, It's pronounced in the neoliberal era, but if you look at previous political movements, I mean, just look at what would be held up uh, traditionally as like the a big left success story, which would be like the Bolshevik Revolution. I don't agree with that. I think that the results of that were horrific, and I think that what happened within the context of that revolution was horrific. But what did you have? You had the Mensheviks uh, being killed by the Bolsheviks. You had Lenin's people trying to kill Trotsky's people. You had, I mean, it was. Like the left, it seems like forever has been, I mean, and even look back at the 1960s. I mean, look at the the deep fissures and, and, and schisms that took place between, say, more militant black power movement and, say, the pacifist nonviolent movement. I mean, on stage, tearing each other apart. Now, both fighting nominally like uh, the racists in the, and, and both the Democratic and Republican Party, segregationists. But they would be more vicious with each other at like a forum in 1969, like Students for a Democratic Society conference. And people would be like screaming and crying and like yelling at each other. And you're a traitor. No, you're a traitor. You're a counter-revolutionary. No, you're a counter I mean, this has been going on for a long time on the left. And I would argue, because I played a lot of sports in my life, that it's from like this position of powerlessness. 
So I think the more powerless you become as a movement, as a person, as an organization, as a team, whatever it is, I think instead of like focusing on what the real problems are, you take like more of this internal focus or you start looking at people around you and you're like, no, Megan, you're the problem. Like, but really, where does that come from? That comes from a place of powerlessness. You continue to lose. And so as you continue to lose and you continue to lose, you either look in the mirror and you say, hey, like, what am I doing that's creating problems and what do I need to change? Or you just consistently find excuses and like find somebody else or something else to blame. And for me, this gets back to a lot of the cultural stuff on the left where, yes, we have systemic institutional problems. However, I do think it's important for people to have like a healthy dose of self-responsibility. Like personal responsibility is important. It's just not good enough. So my right-wing friends are always like, yeah, man, people need to get their shit together, work harder, you know, put a little more effort in, toughen up a little bit. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I agree with all that. But we also need universal health care and some of these other things. And like, that's where, you know, I'm constantly debating with my right wing friends, agreeing with them to some degree. And a lot of them are like really productive people. Like they're up early in the morning. They probably have a decent job. And even if they don't, they're like shooting for something else that they want to do, going to the gym. Uh, you know, if I want to get something done around the, the building here where we stay, I'm not calling one of my left-wing friends. I'm probably going to call one of my Trump-supporting friends and be like, hey, man, do you know how to fix a furnace? Like, let's go put up some, <laughs> like, let's put up some drywall. Let's, uh, you know. Do like, you have a useful skill? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, <laughs> Can you get it together and help me out and get something done? <laughs> I love that you graduated with an anthropology degree, but I have to change the oil in my car today. <laughs> And I don't think that Judith Butler is going to help us do that. So, <laughs> yeah, the left, I, it's, I, I think it's been going on for a long time. And the only reason I say that is because I've done so much reading and well, talking to, you know, generations of previous organizers and activists, but then also just reading a lot about left wing movements over the years. And I really do think it comes from that place of powerlessness. Like when you are in the position of constantly losing and the one thing you do win is this sort of rhetorical battle over um, gender identity and sexuality and all of these things. It's like, that's the one thing you win. That's the one thing that most people actually aren't that interested in. It's like when I made that video that I think you're referencing about, uh, you know, I had like a, a Latina, young Latina activist be like, you need to uh, read more black queer theory to organize uh, effectively in Michigan city. First of all, she doesn't even live in okay. Michigan city. And I just thought to myself, you know, one third of our city's black and I have yet living here for 10 fucking years have yet to have one black person from Michigan city, Indiana, bring up black queer theory to me in any context, in any scenario, at any time, any day, ever. And that's like just the truth. Now, if there was one or two, I would tell you, hey, you know, there's one or two people around here who talk about that. There is no one in my city who talks about stuff like that. So it's so far removed from like my day-to-day -day reality um, that it's even hard to like take it seriously. But to the extent that I do, it's because it's having an impact on other people. And so if young people are being like orientated to politics like this, it scares the shit out of me because we have real issues uh, like poverty, like income inequality, um, like climate change, like wars, like government spying, uh, like too much bureaucracy. I mean, there's like all kinds of things that I think are actually really, really important. And if people are being orientated around like 
let's tear down statues, scream at people, deplatform people, cancel people. Like it's such a childish and and destructive way of approaching politics that like I feel like anyone who right now anyone who thinks differently and still considers themselves on the left had better open their fucking mouths because some people have been saying stuff for years and they've been getting shit on people have been pushing them to the margins but I would also even say to those people like keep your head up and stay strong because when you get out into the real world most people agree like most people are like like this shit that's going on with Tulsi Gabbard like most like when I talk to most people coming from a sports background most people are like yeah regardless of how you view the transgender issue whether you agree or disagree that tra- people who consider themselves transgender females are actually uh, women uh, with that aside most people I know are just like yeah no I don't think my daughter should have to compete against somebody who is biologically born a male um that's just in my neck of the woods that's like common fucking sense type stuff so it worries me because so many people are like exposed to politics that come from new york or la or the bay area or portland oregon or seattle washington and it's so far removed from where a lot of people in this country are coming from the only reason i talk about it is because I know people who are like ordinary, poor, working class people who, when they think of the left, they think of some like purple haired, young, self-identified queer activist running around like screaming and being like, I'm triggered. And like, <laughs> I, ah, I'm like just yelling and shit. And it's like, oh, God. Microaggressions. Like, <laughs> and it's terrible when the caricature fits. I mean, you yeah. know, like people on the left would get upset and I'd be like, no, I've met that person. Like I've met that person. I know who that person is. And yeah, I I don't, you know, to be honest with you, Megan, I don't, I like laughing and joking with you about it, but it's like day to day, it does piss me off because we've got so much like to do and serious challenges in this country that, I mean, around the world, I mean, even in your country, everywhere that, you know, anything that hinders our ability to bring more and more people into the process, I'm opposed to that a hundred percent. Yeah, and it's frustrating because when you say this to people, I find that they usually just get defensive. So, like, if I say, you know, uh, you know, I talk to ordinary people all the time, and I think you're right. Most regular people will just agree with these obvious statements. It's not fair to make girls compete against boys. It's not fair to force women to compete against males. We have different bodies, et cetera, et cetera. This is just reality. You shouldn't even have to make this argument, to be honest. Like, it's weird to have to say men and women have different bodies. Um, (laughs) Biological (laughs) sex exists. Material reality is a real thing. Um, But, like, (laughs) you, you say, you know, like, this isn't what real people think these aren't the conversations real people are engaged in these aren't even the things that most real people really care about i mean the things that most people care about are basic things like access to health care housing being able to feed their families you know feeling safe and secure in their neighborhoods um lots of other things of course i'm sure i'm leaving out lots of stuff but you know job security um i and instead of sort of hearing hearing what what you're saying, for example, or what some others are saying, these critiques of the left saying, you know, like you're losing people, you're not reaching people, you're not listening to what regular people are saying, you're not listening to what regular people want, 
they just get defensive and then, you know, you're the enemy. So instead of sort of trying to affect change or, you know, change the way they try to address or engage with people, they sort of double down in a lot of cases. Like I come from a, a feminist background. So I've mostly, I've been in really engaged in the feminist movement for a really long time. And I actually, I have a BA and a master's degree in women's studies, gender studies. And so like I can speak that language but because I can speak that language, I know that it's like stupid and it's bullshit and that most people don't understand what you're talking about. And when you say, well, you know, when I'll say to other feminists, for example, like you ha don't use jargon like these don't these words don't mean anything to regular people. They don't know what you're talking about. Like this doesn't make sense in terms of um, their day to day experiences um, you have to use just basic normal language and, you know, and it's not even about dumbing it down. Like it's not about condescension. It's just about having real conversations about real things. And, and yeah, I find people get defensive about that. They do. I mean, ah, gosh, you're bringing up. So this is like the the session of can I find enough to complain about over the last 15 years of being an activist <laughs> and organizer? It's like, man, like, thank you. I feel like you've opened up like a, a therapy hour for me to just like vent on all this shit that's driven me nuts about the left. My pleasure. Um, I, we don't spend much time with them. I take a lot of organizing advice and most of our methods from a long tried and true union organizer in the United States by the name of Jane McAlevey. She, in my opinion, is the best organizing mind in the United States. What would she say? She would say, uh, if you're spending more than five or 10% of your day speaking with people who are like-minded and agree with you 90% of the time, you're not organizing. Uh, what you're doing is creating a sort of social club of like-minded people who can pat each other on the back and congratulate each other for memorizing all of the uh, obscure jargon that no one else will know and no one else will recognize. Um, if you're organizing, you're spending, which I'm doing the opposite today, you're spending 70% of your time listening, 30% of your time talking. You're spending 90% of your time with people who aren't on the same page. That doesn't mean people diametrically opposed to you. That means people in the middle. That means some people who are opposed to you. That means people who don't already agree with you. If you're not spending the majority of your day with those people, you're not organizing. So what I've sort of tried to balance is on the one hand, address these issues and try and influence the existing left. And I think we can do that now that we have a YouTube channel, whereas before we just were like, whatever, we're just going to keep going. But I think Brett and others bring up an important point, which is that this is like a ghost that will never go away until we like finally actually deal with it. So it's like we can I think some of us and I've probably been at fault for this kind of looked at those experiences from 2011, 2012, 2013. And we're like, yeah, they're fringe events, mm -hmm. you know, like forget about these people like we have better things to do. And I'm not going to argue with these type of people all the time by doing that. I think what we've done is allow them to have an even stronger voice. And then for other people to think who are on the sidelines to think, well, God, if that's how everybody feels, then like, how am I going to speak up? Well, they don't hear from anyone else. Like they don't hear from people who say, I identify on the left. Why do I identify on the left? 
I'm one of these crazy people like Ursula Le Guin who actually believes that we can live maybe in a system different than capitalism. Does it have to be socialism or communism? Absolutely not. But do I think that there are like big ideas about like how civilization should be structured? Like, could we do better? Could we do things differently? Like, how would we structure the state? How would we structure uh, the, the private sector? How would we structure education? Like, how do we structure international relations and agreements in the context of climate change? Like those things really interest me. And I, I remain on that left, you know, the left that comes from that tradition. And if people don't hear from people who have, you know, those kinds of politics and the only thing people hear from when they think leftist is the triggered, uh, purple haired, crazy ass, uh, queer activist from Evergreen State University that like no one can identify with outside of people who go to Evergreen State University. I think that's a problem. And so I don't know. I'm trying to find a way to balance like we're in the real world. We're in a fucked up scenario here in this town and in this city and state where we live. We got to get stuff done. But at the same time, like in the context of this pandemic, we do have extra time and I've kind of liked putting stuff out on YouTube. Like I didn't realize that there was like a YouTube, like there's like a YouTube community of people who have like shows and, you know, their followers and all this. And it's very interesting because like I asked a couple of people, I was like, oh, I'm going on this program. And they're like, oh, they're like, Megan is, uh, that's a controversial show. Like she's controversial. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, well, where I live, I mean, no offense to you, of course, but I'm like, where I live, nobody knows who she is. I'm like in number two, like, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, not like, you know what I mean? Like, no one in know, Michigan like, City knows who Megan Murphy is. Like, yeah, no. God, and, where have you guys yeah. been? But you know, it's like, <laughs> not I was on like, YouTube. What are you talking about? Like, who am I worried about? Like, and people are worried about this shit. And I think you have to break through that. I think just that alone is like so empowering to just be like, oh, I no longer care. Like what these people who aren't actually in my life and that I know and like I consider friends. Like if you're not in my fucking phone, I don't give a fuck about you. I mean, really, like I do care about you. Like I want you to do well. I don't want you to hurt. I don't want you to deal with war, poverty, disease, anything like that. But in terms of like what your opinion is of me, it's like, come on. Like, Like my mom, my dad, I care about what they think. I care about what my partner thinks. You know, if she thinks I'm being an asshole, I care about that. I don't care what all these other people think. And I think the more we can get people in that mindset, man, we'll be way better off, you know? Yeah. I mean, people really are missing out when they don't realize how liberating and empowering, like you say, it is to just stop caring about all that stuff. Like, it's like, who cares what these people on the internet think about you? Like, they're not in your life. They, why do you, you don't know them. Who cares if they, they, don't like you or they think you have bad politics or whatever. I mean, it just doesn't matter. And wouldn't you rather just be yourself and be able to be authentic and think things through on your, through on your own and be able to tell the truth. I mean, I just feel, I don't know how people can stand it because I find it so oppressive. Like the, the idea that I wouldn't be able to say what I think and to be like an independent thinker and to speak up about something that I think is you know, really destructive or harmful or dangerous. I mean, I just, I couldn't live like that. And I don't know how so many people can, because you see, I mean, you see the way people talk online and the, the kinds of 
you know, politics or activism or language that they support, the cancel culture that they support, like, you know, saying things like anybody, anybody who votes for Trump is like a stupid, evil, racist, misogynist, bigot, like, you know, they're, they're my mortal enemy. And, you know, I just, I mean, to me, that that says a couple of things. But one of the things that it says is like, you probably haven't really talked to that many people who voted for Trump and asked them why they voted for Trump. And of course, they're like, well, I would never, I would never talk to somebody who voted for Trump. And I'm like, well, then good luck. Yeah. (laughs) No, my friend Sam Love says this a lot. He's a great activist uh, organizer from uh, Gary, Indiana. So again, a city that, I mean, if you were to name the top three to five most devastated cities in the United States, Gary, Indiana would be on that list. So people who are listening or watching and don't know, you know, do a little of your own research on what Gary, Indiana is all about. So here's an activist organizer from Gary, Indiana, uh, does a lot of great projects in a, in a really tough context. And, you know, he years ago said to me, Vince, I'm starting to see more and more people come into the left looking for friends instead of looking for like accomplishing specific objectives. Mm. And right away, I thought to myself, this is interesting. On the one hand, we live in a very alienated society, people spending too much time online. We know that from the statistics. So people are looking for connection. We want to cultivate that the best we can. But what we don't want to cultivate, getting back to the point I was making earlier, is some kind of subculture within a subculture. So it's like, okay, you're looking for community. Cool. What does that look like? That looks like talking with people who you don't agree with. That doesn't look like just getting together with people to like express your feelings and express like all of these things that you should find. Like you're looking for affirmation in all the wrong places instead of looking for it in the people who are closest to you, instead of looking for it in yourself, you know, to look up, you know, wake up, look in the mirror and say, Hey Vince, I'm happy. I'm happy with me. Cool. Like, that, but looking for it through likes, looking through it through exposure, looking through it through um, accolades or whatever it may be. And if you say all the right things and you do all the right things in the activist world, you can get all of those things. Like you said, you took the classes. Like I took gender studies classes. Like, you know, I was like going through cisgender this. Okay. And then there's this. And then it's like, you know, when I, when some, when my teacher tried to tell me that a biologically born female and a biologically born female can date each other and be a gay male couple was the moment when I was like, no, go fuck yourself. I was just like, nope, nope. I was like, I'll, I'll take, I'm like, I'll go like, um, I'll go as far as you want. I mean, I've always been like sort of very open about talking about sex that, you know, like all of those things. And it's the same with these fucking guys. Uh, this is my last rant. I probably shouldn't have drank this. I shouldn't have drank this scotch before this, this uh, conversation, but I figured why not? Cause I looked at a couple of your previous ones and I see you and your friend are always drinking wine. So I was like, all right. So I was like, I'm like, think about these guys, all of these fucking guys. I've seen so many stories from these self-identified feminists, uh, sexual assault, rape, harassment, all this shit. Um, and I always got shit for going into left-wing circles. People be like, oh, Vince, you know, like, I'm like, have I ever offended a woman that I've organized with? They're like, like, oh, no, 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 no. But like, you know, you cuss too much or this or that. And I'm like, I'm like, that fucking guy who said he was a feminist is like <laughs> hitting, hitting on these women at these fucking meetings. Like, I'm not hitting on anybody. Like, I'm just speaking the way I would speak where I come from. And it was this weird dynamic where all the guys that I met who were trying to be like the most like, 
woke feminist types were always like the most shady, fucking weird, backstabbing, like just nasty motherfuckers. And I was like, all the guys I knew who like didn't understand any of that, they're like, yeah, I got a daughter. Like, ain't nobody talking anything bad about women in this fucking group or I'll beat your ass. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It was like those type of guys who were like, yeah, like you can't talk to women like that. Like, yeah. like, you know, it's like and some those guy are the guys who would never go around announcing that they're feminists, right? They're just no like, yeah, no, don't treat women like that. Fuck off. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm probably just rambling about nonsense, but I, uh, I, yeah, it's an interesting contradiction where like on the surface, it gets back to the superficiality on the surface. If you look the part, play the part, speak the part, you can move through these left like social circles and like get an NGO position and get grant money to do your thing or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, like I see a lot of that as like a lot of posing, kind of like the Antifa. It's like cosplay revolution is what I call it. It's like that's like cosplay revolution. It's not for real. It is destructive and it's also just laughable because like most of these guys that self-identify as feminists and this kind of stuff, it's like, why are all my female friends always complaining about you? Like, yeah. and why are they not complaining about the guys who come to our meetings who don't like try to like just trying so hard to, I don't know, do what, but. And who don't have all that language, you know, who aren't saying cisgender and aren't <laughs> thinking about pronouns and so on and so forth. I know. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think you're totally right. Um, I guess. I mean, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about about Trump and like and that idea that. That very unhelpful idea that anyone who decided to vote for Trump um either in 2016 or this time around is inherently like a hateful person. Again, you know, is they have to be racist. They have, how could you vote for Trump unless you were a misogynist? Um, how could you vote for Trump unless you hate immigrants? Um, you know, your only option, if you are going to be considered a good person, a progressive person is to vote for Biden. And I mean, I, fully disagree with this but i i, I read in the in an, in the, that interview i mentioned earlier that you said you know even even union reps um when asked why so many of their members were voting for trump would just be like oh it's because they're idiots it's because they're stupid i mean yeah. i i i don't know what I mean, what's what's the problem with that? First of all, I mean, you've probably talked to lots of people who vote for Trump and you know why they vote. Like, why are people supporting Trump? My goodness, that is a uh, I don't think we have another hour, so I'll make it quick. But uh, look, <laughs> I, there's a I think it's like both sides. Again, there really are Trump supporters who are off the rails, just yeah. like there are Democrats who are off the fucking rails. Like I for the last four years have tried to have conversations with self-identified liberals who are convinced that Vladimir Putin is the reason that Donald Trump is the president. Like mm -hmm. they're convinced that you can't say anything to them. And these are the same people who for four years tried to uh, delegitimize Trump's victory. And now they're the ones saying, oh, well, how could these Trump supporters try and delegitimize Joe Biden's victory? It's like <laughs> they're attacking democracy. And it's, it's like, do you remember them. like, it's amazing. It really is amazing. And that kind of unprincipled, hypocritical um, behavior uh, 
I think is why people go to Trump. Like I have a lot of friends who are kind of apolitical people who might vote for Trump because they're just like, you know what? I'm tired of being just talked down to like, fuck the Democrats because they think I'm just some dumbass. And it's like that thing where like, if you continually tell someone like you're a piece of shit, Megan, you're a piece of shit. At some point you just go, I'm going to be a piece of shit. Like, fuck you. Like I'm going to now act out in the ways that you don't want me to not even because I might like it or because it might be beneficial to me just as a big fuck you to you. Um, and I, I think that's a big part of it. We've got a lot of steel mills in our region still, uh, much less than existed 20, 30 years ago. But those who do exist appreciate the trade bills. It is true that right. we are getting screwed by certain trade deals. It is true that U.S. corporations, so this is like trying to find that nuance again. Trump tries to blame it all on China. It is true that China's taking advantage of the context, but it's American corporations who are choosing to move to China so they can maximize their profits, so on and so forth. So it's like I just try and add that nuance, and I've I've found that people really appreciate if you can really just kind of talk shit about both sides. So yeah. like I hang out at it's probably not surprising, but I have a tattoo parlor that I hang out at regularly that my good friend owns. That's like kind of my barbershop like place to just go once a week when things were, were normal. Like I'd go there once or twice a week, hang out for four or five hours, shoot the shit with people, watch people come in and out, get tattoos, talk with them. And you know, a tattoo shop's a lot like a barbershop where like you go and you're there for two, three, four, sometimes eight hours. And you're just kind of talking with people and people are rapping about their lives and politics and I, I've found in those contexts anywhere where I'm just in a normal space, not around, you know, self-identified lefties, that if you just can talk about both sides being full of shit, but remain principled in terms of where you're coming from, people do respect that. And you're not going to change their mind after one conversation. In fact, you might not change their mind through conversation. That's probably a conversation for another day about uh, what organizing actually looks like. But I would just say that like, People really respect genuine people. And I think it's one of the reasons why, like, I remember on the left, people freaking out about Joe Rogan. And I was mm -hmm. like, you're surprised why people like Joe Rogan. Like, are you really surprised by this? And people be like, I don't get it. You know, like, he's not, he's not particularly smart, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> that comment in and of itself is why people hate the fucking left. But um, it was just like, man, because he talks like if you grabbed a guy off of fucking wherever – like those are the kind of questions they would ask. That's the kind of demeanor they would have. Like if you don't understand why that resonates with people, like that ability to just be yourself, be honest, be open. And that I, it's, it's shocking to me how detached from social reality and how socially insufferable a lot of people on the left are. And then simultaneously sit back and ask like, why doesn't anyone join our organization? <laughs> <laughs> my god why would you want to join something that's so just insufferable like why would anyone want to do that i'm i you know yeah it doesn't make I'm, sense like like what is here let me i know that i'm turning the the tables around but i want to ask you a question because i'm in my normal role i get to ask questions sure what is the <laughs> left like, what does that look like where you say live in Canada? Like, what are the issues that are important? And like, what do people think about this? Like, are they orientated through all these cultural issues? Or is it that the economics is most important? Like, I'm interested to know. I don't think the left is thinking about economics. I certainly don't think they're thinking about the working class. I mean, so I live in Vancouver, which is comparable to like Portland or Seattle. 
So it's terrible. Um, so it's a city of yuppies. Um, it's very difficult. You know, housing is unaffordable. Um, we have a real problem with, uh, we have like a major drug problem on the downtown east side. Um, we're, you know, more people are dying of drug overdoses than they are of COVID here. Um, and partly because of COVID, um, because the supply can't get across the border, because people can't access services. What, what the left represents in BC, in Vancouver, and to a certain level across Canada is virtue signaling. They're so cowardly. The thing that bothers me the most is that they are so cowardly. They will stand up for nothing. So no one will diverge from the party line. You support these politics. You support these ideologies. You use these words. You use this language. You hate these people. And if you don't, you're not on the left. You're out. Um, And... You know, and the other problem with Canada and the Canadian left is that we sort of glom on to American politics and our politics are not the same as American politics and American politics differ depending on where you are, as you know. But, you know, it's, you know, so in Vancouver, there's there's Black Lives Matter rallies, protests, whatever you want to call them. And I'm sort of like, why are you doing this in Vancouver? You know, what does this movement have to do with Vancouver? We don't have these same problems in Vancouver that they do in the U.S. There's lots of problems in Vancouver that need to be dealt with. There's lots of problems in Canada that need to be dealt with. You know, racism exists in Canada and and in Vancouver, but our demographics are very different, very different than, say, New York, um, Chicago. Um, and, And, you know, probably most states, to be honest. But um, we have di- we have a different history, and it's it's very cliquey. It's very elitist. It's you know mostly people who are university educated, and you know a, a lot of the problem with the labor movement and the fact that you know like our left wing party is so connected to the labor movement is that um, you know people are trying to keep their jobs also. Right. Like they have a fairly cushy job and they want to keep their job in the union, in the party, in the NGO, whatever it is. And what that means is that you have to toe the line. And if you hate this person or you're, you have to hate this person, I mean, like you have to in order to maintain your your status, your position, your income. But, yeah, I mean, that's sort of like all over the place. I suppose I don't even know if I answered no, no, it helps. but it's very it, it, frustrating. To, it's frustrating because the people who are posing as radicals and revolutionaries and fighting the power are the most cowardly people who are afraid to speak up about anything um, outside the designated bounds of what you're allowed to say and speak about and support. What is concerning about this is two days ago, I received an email from a woman in, um, Belarus, who said that she wanted to host me because she had found, I, I'm assuming the same video that you found, which was just kind of like why people hate the left and just sharing yeah. a story. And she was like, look, this is also a problem in Belarus. And now I've done some international traveling over the years, largely for political uh, projects, campaigns, and so forth. And I have always been shocked at how much 
I think because of the cultural machine of Hollywood and all the rest, but just how much the cultural tendencies on the American left have seeped into activism all over the world. I mean, it's not just in North America. It's not just in uh, English speaking sort of English, uh, former English colonies, like, you know, spending time in Australia, same thing. Like I remember being in Australia and going to events and I would like walk outside of the event, kind of walk around the city or get something to eat, get a beer, kind of look around and be like, okay, here's how these people look, act and talk. And now I'd go back into the event, you know, wherever it was at a university or whatever the thing was. And I'd be like, okay, here's what everybody looks like in this room. Here's how everybody talks in this room. And I'd be like, just amazed that this was happening all over the world. Excuse me. Seeing, getting an email from someone from Belarus was, I was happy to do the event, but I was bummed out for like the rest of the night. Like I just sat there and thought to myself, like, Oh my God, this is actually everywhere now. Now I can't say everywhere because again, I'm assuming if you go, if I ask my friends in uh, Turkey, I'm assuming maybe that's not the case, but in a lot of these industrialized nations, like this is commonplace now. And it's a real problem. It's now that people on the left are recognizing, Oh, it's not just that thing. That's annoying. It's, oh, no, this is what is to either in one way pushing people away from joining your movement or pushing even at the worst, pushing pushing people to the other side to support policies uh, that, you know, I do find destructive and so forth. And it I think it's one of the biggest issues of our time is challenging this this dominant uh, culture on the left, like the, what people think of the left, like redefining that for people, I think is one of our, our big challenges because I do, I mean, I am, I'm not one of these people who's like scared that there's going to be this or that, but like, I, I am worried for my country. Like I am genuinely worried. And as someone whose grandfather fought in world war two, two purple hearts, you know, 30 months in combat, my dad who served in Vietnam, you know, unfortunately another bullshit war, my brother who served in Iraq, or I'm sorry, Afghanistan and Syria, myself who served in Iraq, like come from a family of people who have sacrificed a tremendous amount for this country, um, both through the military, but then also people who helped build this country, like helped literally build the roads and railroads and steel mills and produce the products and raise the children that went off to fight those wars, like my mom, who was a stay-at-home mom. Um, you know... This is serious to me. I mean, in other words, I enjoy having these conversations because I think to myself, well, thank fucking God there's somebody on YouTube who's like speaking about this in a way that's just like normal people <laughs> speak about it. But there's another part of me that actually, I, I, you know, all of this is very serious to me. I came to politics through a war. Uh, to me, there's not much that's more serious than that. It's like my, I was orientated through the politics of war. To me, that means political decisions are life or death decisions. We should take it as seriously as we can. And I want people to act that way. You know, like I really want people to, to say to themselves, like, am I involved with this for like entertainment to like build a name for myself, whatever it is? Or like, am I involved with this because I genuinely want to make a difference in the world and, you know, then proceed uh, how, you know, whatever your conclusion is, proceed accordingly. But I... Yeah, I take it very seriously. So whoever ended up, you know, uh, listening to my ramblings tonight or <laughs> watch this, I just hope people really understand that, like, there are 
a lot of people out there who don't agree with this. There's a lot of people out there who agree with us. And there's a ton of really confused people in the middle who just need people to talk to them in a human way and about issues that actually matter to them. And I think people will see, you know, some real successes in their efforts if they do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't keep you too much longer, but I do have a couple more questions that I want to ask you if that's okay. Yeah, cool. um, one of which is, I mean, just because I often feel, I feel like people feel sort of helpless sometimes because I, a lot of people are frustrated about the things that we're talking about here. They're seeing what's going on and they're just like, you know, they're frustrated with the kind of dialogues or lack of dialogue that's going on really um, the polarization, the lack of real genuine conversations, authenticity, so on and so forth. I mean, how do we, the polarization is disturbing and it's scary. And, you know, I also worry that it will literally come to blows. Um, people, you know, people threaten violence over this kind of thing and people aren't talking to one another and people are dehumanizing one another. And to me, you know, when we're dehumanizing other people, that is so dangerous because of course, one of the things happens that can happen when you dehumanize someone um, is that it's easier to hurt them. It's easier to treat them as though they aren't human. It's easier to perpetrate violence against them. I mean, how do you think that we can go about combating the polarization that's going on right now politically i think people have to all right how do i say this because we're in the midst of this pandemic and i know people are trapped depending on where they're located i think while we're in this context we have to speak as openly and honestly as we can and have more conversations like the ones you and i are having even beyond the one that you and i are having like speaking to people who genuinely disagree And showing people by example, because again, for me, what pisses me off about the left and people who just talk is like, we could talk about everything all night, all day. What are we going to do? And like actually show people an example, like in my world coming from sports, the military, like good leadership isn't just giving a good line and being able to speak. It's partly that. And then it's actually people seeing like, oh, Vince acts like this. That's number one. Like you act the way that you know, you show an example. I think the second thing is like doing things in the real world. And that means working on projects that might bring people together. So for instance, in a place like Michigan City, we're working on a tenants rights or uh, campaign, really a tenants union campaign. Why? We have skyrocketing housing prices in a market that shouldn't be as high as it is uh, for people who are barely making ends meet. So people have to organize, they have to find ways to bring the cost of housing down. Now, at these apartment complexes, you're going to find both Trump supporters and non-Trump supporters. You're going to find people who are apolitical. To me, in how I've been trained to organize, that is how you open up the discussion. You don't like invite a group of Trump supporters to your community center and say, hey, guys, let's sit down and just debate the world. You know, we disagree on any number of things. Let's just sit down and disagree with each other some more. It's like, no, like. What are the things in your community that matter? Like your kid goes to the same school that my kid goes to. What are the top three things you would like to change at school for your kid? Here's the top five things I would like to change. Or what are the top five things you would change? Here's the top five things I would change. Hey, there's two of those top five we agree on. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about the three that we disagree on right away. Maybe they'll come up in the future. They probably will. Let's talk about the two things that we do agree on. 
And by talking about the two things that we do agree on, maybe we'll find through those conversations that there's more than just these two little things uh, at this school where our kids go to uh, that we agree on. Those are the kind of things people need to do. I mean, having these debates online, via social media, really unhelpful, volatile at times. You know, I, I do think we have to find a way to manage these mediums better. But I think it's through like real world action and finding common concerns. And I do think no matter how crazy, I mean, unless you're like watching MSNBC every day and reading the New York Times and like ideologically dug in as a liberal the way that say somebody listening to Rush Limbaugh and watching Fox News every day is dug in as a Trump supporter like those are still small segments of American society like majority Mm -hmm. of Americans are outside of both of those worlds and I think even for the people who are in those worlds like let's find things that we can work together on and I think people would be surprised if they Avoid the hot button issues of the day, uh, what Trump tweeted or transgender this or this or that, like focus on issues that make a material difference in people's lives. And it's the same conversation I have with my friends in Black Lives Matter, where I'm like, I don't know too many black people in my life. I'm not black, so I don't know, but I'm around a lot of black people and live in a city that's one third black. And I don't know too many of them who wake up and the first thing they think about is the police. I do know a whole bunch of black people who the first thing they wake up and they think about is their kids going to school, their debt, their medical bills, whether or not their job's going to be around, whether or not they can retire, whether or not they can afford their house. I do know a lot of people who wake up and that's their first thought, black, white, Hispanic, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we should talk about the things that people do um, wake up and, and genuinely think about and not the things framed by the corporate media, both left and right, that is only meant to just cause more and more division. Um, and it's done a great job of doing that. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and uh, finally, I, I wonder if this is not a small question. I apologize. Um, I wonder if you think that, America is better off now that Biden has won the election versus, you know, is, is America better off with Biden over Trump? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie to people and pretend like I didn't sign a letter with a bunch of progressive uh, writers and organizers who are like encouraging people to vote for Biden. Why would I, why did I think that was important? Do I think it's that much better off? No, I don't. Do I think that some Jesus Christ, I don't even know. It's so funny because at the time I was like, no, I think this is like I could convince myself that this was like a strategically important thing to do. And I and I I genuinely kind of just treat voting as like a tactic like this is a tactic. You use it strategically and that's the end of it. Like it doesn't define who you are. So in other words, it's like kind of your point, like we get it on the left where people are like, Oh, you voted for Biden, so I guess you're just a sellout neoliberal imperialist scumbag. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, okay. I voted for him. I think he's a piece of shit. I think maybe having technocratic neoliberals in the short term might be better than having like snake handlers uh, deal with the economy. I don't fucking know. They're both fucking horrific and scare the shit out of me. Yeah, I think the country's that much better off. No, I don't. And and in fact, this is why I spend so much of my time trying to, and it is a complex question, but just to answer it quickly, this is why I spend so much of my time trying to organize independent political movements detached from both political parties that can hold either party accountable, 
that are principled political movements that don't play team sports, you know, where it's like, hey, if it's a war, I don't give a shit if it's Barack Obama or George Bush, I'm opposed to it. Hey, if it's, uh, you know, more tax cuts and deregulation for the uber rich and corporations in Wall Street, I don't care if it's Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, George Bush and Mitt Romney, I'm opposed to it. The more we can inject that kind of, I think, principled politics, uh, the better off. And, I, you know, I mean, how much better the country is. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, it's like the worst question in the world. Thank you for leaving. Yeah. With this. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I just God. want you to end this feeling bad. <laughs> I'm leaving feeling bad now. No, I, I don't uh, have any answers. What am I doing? <laughs> exactly how I feel. I'm like, no, my hope lies with the people like uh, my grandfather and the people who organized on the railroads with Chinese workers, black workers, Mexican workers, um, my dad and, and his people who who organized workers in Chicago. Um, I, I genuinely believe that ordinary people can make a difference. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't do what I do. And so I I think expertise is needed. I think sometimes it's it's helpful, but I also like genuinely believe in the heart, strength, humility, grace power of like ordinary fucking working people. And I believe that those people like anyone else can make decisions about their lives and they don't need somebody from a university or some elite to tell them what to do. And I'll maintain that till the end of time. So that's kind of like what keeps me going. I wake up in the morning, my feet hit the ground and I say to myself, ordinary people can make a difference in this world. What can we do to make that happen and try and brush off all the petty shit? Because in, in my world here, it just, it doesn't matter. Yeah, right on. Um, thank you so much. I love this conversation so much. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate what you're doing. I really appreciate um, how like open and authentic you are. I think that it's like a really good way to role model behavior to others who might worry about doing the same thing, I suppose. Right on. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the conversation as well. And I will have you on so I can just sit back, shut up and ask you questions. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I love talking. So <laughs> yeah, so do I. I come from a big Italian family and we're from Chicago. So it's like, you have to tell <laughs> me, like, hey, man, shut the fuck up. Like, it's over with. Shut up. And I'm like, OK, cool. You know, <laughs> but- no, I mean, that's what you're here for. We're here to listen to you talk. So it was really yeah, it was really nice to hear from you. And thank you for all your uh, talking. Right <laughs> thank you, Megan. Cool. Have a great night. All right, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. We rely entirely on supporters and donors like you to keep doing this work. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.